0: whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. As
1: we again face a climate of pending war, and the latest event on this Tuesday night was that our government was involved in dropping 40 tons of bombs on a remote island off the coast of Iraq. Not Iran, but Iraq. This war act is still another of those movements we're seeing that are not being resisted properly by any groups that we know of. Now, at our one of our previous broadcasts, we talked about the three-sided pyramid for war and what those three sides were. And it's this writer's view that there are only three faces, but there are a lot of participants that climb on all of these, so you can kind of picture three faces of the pyramid pointing toward war with with other groups hanging on all the sides. We do this for the sake of making it visual uh, to imagine who really is causing and running our wars. And of course, we're excluding from this the politicians that pull the triggers. Because they are the ones who are motivated by others, who actually stimulate and create the causes of the wars and the propaganda that supports them. In our previous story, we listed these three sides of war as the arms makers. That is, the people that profit directly from war and know they profit directly from war, without any question or doubt the Boeing Company, the General Dynamics Company and thousands of contractors make up one side, but only one side of this warring pyramid. They're the sides that are already always ready for war. It can't come too soon for them and it can't last too long. Doesn't mean they're evil and that our friends don't work for their companies. It just means they have a motivation, a financial motivation for for the thing we call war. Then there is the financial side of this. This is the side that is very deliberate and very conniving. It's faced on our country by the Federal Reserve System that we know of, that it's, as we've talked about many times, it's a private system. And it's created by others who are essentially running our Federal Reserve Board, or our central bank, and the central banks of the other countries that participate with us, such as the European Central Bank and the Bank of England. So we have two sides of this unlikely pyramid. And then the third side uh, is the side that essentially creates and supports the hatred that causes the war to go on. Without this side, we, we wouldn't have wars because the political factions simply wouldn't settle for them. So we have a created hatred or a motive for the wars that is imagined and hatched up and sold to us. And we find on this side of the pyramid, the support has to come from organized massive factions. And we find these factions in churches. And today, the third side of the pyramid has kept going that keeps the hatred going, uh, that allows the war, are found in our churches. And they, of course, are misled by others, but they create the momentum that makes the war possible. With this little bit of background, I want to introduce our speaker tonight, who's going to talk to us about some of these religious ideas that are used or maybe even intended Support the idea of war. Craig Hansen, his experience, he spent a lot of time in churches, he's spoken a great deal. I don't know if he's ever been a formal pastor or not. We'll ask him that. And his subject is Is Christianity a religion of peace or of war? And this is a very serious question that is made serious by. Groups that we have talked about many times in the past and we'll be talking about many times in the future. And in the future programs, we're going to be discussing these remaining two sides of this pyramid. The money-creating side that funds the war. And then secondly, this massive personnel, faction side that actually consistently creates the hatred that allows the war to on. So Craig, we thank you for being on with us. And tell us, is Christianity a religion of peace or of war? And how do we tell the difference? And what can we do about it?
2: Great, Chuck. Well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, and to answer your one question, you no, know, I've attended two different Bible colleges, but never became a pastor. So I'm totally a, a lay pastor. I fell in love with God's holy word back oh, back in the in the 70s when I gave my life to the Lord. And since then, it, it's been a delight to study and search the scriptures to find out what God's will is, what his plan is, and how to live a life pleasing to him. I picked the title for tonight's We Hold These Truths Speaks Out, Is Christianity a Religion a Peace of War? Because really at We Hold These Truths, our mission is to combat Christian Zionism, which makes that quest to find out a very legitimate question to ask. So I thought I'd start out with an Internet search of that very phrase. Is Christianity a religion of peace or war? A fun exercise to do if you have some time to spare. I was surprised that it returned 18,400,000 results. Needless to say, I haven't examined them all. A couple articles that I'll just address here. I found a May 2014 article which was entitled, Christianity is not a religion of peace, exclamation. It is a religion of war and combat. One from November 2015 was entitled, Paris Attacks, Why Islam and Christianity are Twin Religions of War and Peace. I found an interesting BBC article from 2009, which was entitled, Christianity and the Ethics of War. I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs from that article. And I quote, the Christian view of war has changed throughout the history of the faith. The early church, the first 300 years, was strongly pacifist. Origen said that Christians, quote, do not go forth as soldiers, end quote. Tertullian wrote, only without the sword can the Christian wage war, for the Lord has abolished the sword, end quote. And Clement of Alexandria wrote, quote, he who holds the sword must cast it away, And if one of the faithful becomes a soldier, he must be rejected by the church, for he has scorned God, This changed rapidly in the time of Constantine, the Council of Arles in 314, said that to forbid the state the right to go to war was to condemn it to extinction. And shortly after that, Christian philosophers began to formulate the doctrine of the just war. So <clears throat> that was the quote from the BBC article, and I think it's it's really significant that they, they recognized that the early church was a church of peace, not of war. The idea of a just war for Christians saw its most recent use in the land letter. This letter was written by Richard D. Land, that's where it got its name, who at that time was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this letter was sent to President George Bush on October 3, 2002, to give uh, President Bush really the spiritual cover at that time for his preemptive war against Iraq. And this letter was signed by Richard Land, like I said, the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Dr. Chuck Colson, chairman of Prison Fellowship Ministries, Dr. Bill Bright, who was the founder and chairman of Campus Crusade for Christ. Dr. D. James Kennedy, uh, president of Coral Ridge Ministries. And finally, Dr. Carl Herbster, the president of the American Association of Christian Schools. So what passage of scripture did these Christian leaders quote in their letter to President Bush to support this attack? Well, please don't hold your breath because there were none. No scriptures in this letter at all. Instead, we find in this letter, quote, Specifically, we believe that your stated policies concerning Saddam Hussein and his headlong pursuit and development of biochemical and nuclear weapons of mass destruction are prudent and fall well within the time-honored criteria of just war theory as developed by Christian theologians in the late 4th and early 5th centuries A.D. That's quoted from the land letter that was signed by these Christian leaders. And notice that they don't appeal to the teachings of Jesus, the apostles, the nicene church fathers. The Council of Nicaea occurred in uh, 325 A.D., and actually that was authorized or put together by the Roman Emperor Constantine I at that time. And it's really interesting that we see this a lot in the, the whole Christian Zionist that you can't grab verses from the New Testament and say this is a just war. This is this is war. We're supposed to go do this. It is not there. And I find it so interesting that in the Land Letter they couldn't they couldn't even quote any scripture because there isn't any. And this is where I'd like to uh, make my shout out to uh, Pastor Greg Boyd's excellent sermon series. And it was from April and May of 2004, and it was entitled "The Cross and the Sword." You can just go to W H Church. That's org, and you can search for that. Pastor Boyd goes into great detail on how the message of the Prince of Peace got subverted by the taste of political power under Constantine, and most of the church today hasn't got off of that diet at all, and they they still like this whole idea of political power and the the war machine that's unleashed by that. So now, as followers of Jesus, let's see what the uh, New Testament has to say about peace and war. Again, doing a little search, I fired up my Strong's Concordance and found that peace occurs 96 times and war occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And one passage that I found uh, quoted many times to justify Christian violence was from Matthew 10:34, in which Jesus says, quote, Do not think I have come to bring peace peace on the earth i have not come to bring peace but a sword well that settles it right i mean as followers of jesus we can wield the sword if the cause is right huh i mean isn't that what that verse says well uh, not so fast as i've always heard any text without the context is a pretext so uh, let's look at that scripture what was jesus saying there when he said i didn't come to bring peace but a sword uh, let's let him finish the thought which is in Matthew 10:35 and following For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whosoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it so just as a sword separates parts from the body as it's being wielded so too with the teachings of jesus separates close personal relationships i think we all know of people who have been ostracized by friends or family members after they've surrendered their life to jesus christ and truly have become his disciple. This is the removal of peace that Jesus is talking about. It's the rejection of the notion of peace at any price, or go along to get along mentality, not wanting to ruffle any feathers, not wanting to make people uncomfortable in their sin, and so on. Well, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus taught us what the way of peace is. The only problem is, we don't like it, and we want to have another option that is more acceptable to our flesh as the Bible describes our sinful nature. Verses like Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And Matthew five thirty eight, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5.43, And you have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, you shall love your enemy. And Matthew 6.14, There's no place for vengeance or retaliation uh, under Jesus' teachings. For he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And the corollary is if you don't forgive, neither will your trespasses be forgiven. Matthew 6, he talks about where your treasure is. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Also, Matthew seven. Jesus talks about judging. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And of course, Jesus in this in Matthew seven, the golden rule, and which applies across every everything. Even uh, other religions that are not Christian, they they understand this basic principle from Matthew seven. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then I'm, I'm going to a couple um, from Romans, uh, Romans 12:14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. And Romans 12, a little further down, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, why, why bring up this topic today, and how does it relate to our mission to expose Christian Zionism? Well, as, as I showed above with the land letter, most Christians and almost all the evangelicals believe in the just war policy. And with the case of Christian Zionists, they take that just war ideology to a whole new level when they combine it with even more bad theology and create and support a war machine that is destroying lives and property in the Middle East under the guise of supporting God's chosen people. What about they obey the namesake of their religion instead and follow Jesus' teaching. Also, um, Scripture has a lot to say about the last days. And from a biblical perspective, we've been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, says, For the time will come when they, the so-called church, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. And there's definitely a whole lot of miss with uh, with Zionism. Well, we've got quite an abundance of those teachers today. And uh, just to name a few of the John Haggis of the world, we have people like Paula White, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Franklin Graham, Robert Jeffers K. Arthur, and most of those, if not all, of the graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary who have gone out into the world preaching their version of Christianity that just has a glimmer of Jesus in it. Chuck, some time ago, you came up with the moniker of Neo-Christianity to describe the teaching That is so prevalent in today's churches especially the evangelical branches that adhere to christian zionist teaching of the ones i i name plus uh, many others chuck i would say that there's nothing new about this new religion at all in fact the new testament has much to say about this new teaching in second timothy chapter 3 says but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people they will always be learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth and a couple of verses later this is one i'm sure we all love in second timothy 3:12 it says indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted and finally one more from jesus Before the crucifixion, he's going up to the Mount of Olives, and he prophesied Jerusalem's coming destruction. You can find this in Luke chapter 19. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So rejecting Jesus or misquoting or misinterpreting his words, that that does not lead to peace but rather to conflict and war. And it's way past time for the true church to learn what our master taught and obey him. And that's just uh, kind of the end of my scripture teaching on what Jesus had to say about peace tonight. And I'd
1: like to open it up for um, any discussions, any questions. Thanks, Craig. That was wonderful. And it's very difficult to imagine how, if anyone read the Bible that you quoted from, and took these verses seriously that they could ever support or participate in a bombing raid that dropped uh, 40 tons of bombs on some island, in Jungle Island, by the way, where they could not even see who they were dropping the bombs on, uh, no doubt killing people. And if, uh, if they didn't kill people, they were certainly trying, which is just as bad, isn't
2: it? Right. In preparing for this, Chuck, I was thinking about just the Nuremberg trials. And when the Nazi soldiers were questioned, they said, well, we were just following orders. We were just following orders. Well, that wasn't good enough. There was a demand for a higher moral conscience, if you will, than just following orders. But that, as you're talking about the bombers, whether it's in Vietnam with the napalm or wherever you're talking about in modern times, you're still responsible. When you pull that trigger or flip that switch, you're still responsible.
1: We hold and believe that our churches are totally responsible for what is going on because they are the one side of the pyramid that holds it up. Without their massive support, which is powerfully political, of course we found that of evangelicals that have these beliefs about Israel in the coming times, 85% voted for the current administration, which is pulling the trigger on these war actions that we're seeing. We say that this side of the pyramid that is the one that is our target and the one that we want to change and convince. And if we could accomplish that, along with millions of our friends who see it our way, we b- really believe that it would be very difficult for politicians or, or the money-printing machine that prints the money or even the military-industrial complex that makes the weapons and profits so richly from their use we see it as very difficult for them to keep their base together. If our Christian brothers and sisters that make up this massive voting blocks that are being taken advantage of would simply demand no more. So your statement here today is superb and we hope it's heard by a lot of people.
3: Craig, yes, this is Tom. I'd like to make a comment about Pastor Greg Boyd's series, The Cross and the Sword. I happen to have a friend that has been attending Craig Boyd's church since 2002, and a recent conversation with my friend, he told me the rest of the story, actually. At the time that this series was delivered, there were about 5,000 members of Woodland Hills. Craig Boyd is a senior pastor there. And the interesting thing about this series was that as a result of this, about 1,000 to about 20% of the congregation actually left. And so this reinforces this notion of Christianity to these people being a war-based type of religion. And there were five points that he made. I'm going to quote him in one of the notes here. God's warning is that we allow our politics to be more important to us than our daily obedience to God. Many disastrous consequences happen. Some of those include, one, it compromises our witness to God because we are associated with our cause or idol more than Christ. Two, we begin to believe that the pseudo-Christian veneer that our culture has is true Christianity and forget that our citizenship and loyalties lie with a kingdom that is not of this world. Three, we begin to trust power over like the world does rather than power under, which Christ models. In other words, the state is the power over. Four, we know we are in danger of this when we put our hopes in passing laws or electing a certain candidate rather than keeping all our hope in Christ. And I would point, we'll have a link to a very interesting interview conducted by CNN with Greg Boyd. And if you, I recommend the whole series. There's six sermons in this series, The Cross and the Sword. But if you want a synopsis, just listen to this seven-minute interview with Greg Boyd. It's quite eye-opening.
1: Okay, any other questions this evening Greg?
2: What I talked about this evening was the, the whole peace side of the New Testament. Well, I also looked at those verses that had war mentioned in it. And, and frankly, a lot of them come out of Revelation with Satan warring against the church of the saints and the angels. And so a lot of war in that. But what I wanted to look at is how did Jesus and Paul and other writers look at military service? What was the emphasis in that? I read that one quote, I think it was from Tertullian or whatever, that basically said, if you become a soldier, you basically walk away from God. That was that one perspective. But Jesus and Paul never, never said that. They never condemned military duty. In 2 Timothy, Paul uses the analogy of a soldier. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You know, basically saying that our allegiance to Christ is as a soldier to his superiors. I found this really interesting. This was uh, John the Baptist in uh, Luke chapter 3. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share is to share with the one who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise tax collectors also came and John said to them collect no more than you're authorized to do soldiers also asked him and we what shall we do and he said to them do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages and also we have Cornelius who was a uh, Roman centurion he came to Peter And that was really one of the first Gentile converts to Christianity. And also the centurion came to Jesus in Matthew 8, and uh, Jesus healed the centurion's slave. And in none of those passages do you have either John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, or Paul saying, Well, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow God, you've got to get rid of this military stuff. You've got to, you know, totally be a pacifist, walk away from all this. They never say that. They say, you know, basically to do your job and do it with integrity and not victimize the people that you're either ruling over or, or whatever your authority is, don't use that in an ungodly way. So I'd like to finish with this last one. This is on the Statement of War from uh, 2 Corinthians 10. And this is talking about the real warfare that's going on. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the warfare we're supposed to be engaged in. We're supposed to be engaged in spiritual warfare, praying and exposing the deeds of darkness. So I'd like to just finish with that.
1: Thank you, Craig. This is a great presentation. You have shown us that Christianity is a religion of peace. It does not justify war or killing in any way. It's just that the abuses of Christianity, such as the abuse we call Christian Zionism have come to the place where they support the warriors and the killers over and above their own beliefs.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1.